exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. No matter who you are or where you come from, nobody wants to be excluded. For example, I still remember way back in sixth grade when my school hosted tryouts for the soccer team and I did not make the team. And, and I couldn't believe it because I had grown up playing soccer. Like I put in six solid seasons into the sport and, and of course I never had, had to try out before. So when they, they posted the list up on the wall of all the people who had made the team, I remember looking over and over and over again looking for my name and just being kind of shocked especially because of the 20 kids who tried out, I was like two of them that didn't make it. So that was just embarrassing. And I was really bummed out. And then I really thought hard about the tryouts. Um, I had always just played soccer for fun, so it never really occurred to me how bad I really was. Like I had no ball control, easily the slowest runner there. When I had played soccer in the past, my coaches always – just put me on defense because they knew I couldn't score. And then even at one point they said, don't even try to get the ball. Just kick it out of bounds because you let them go right by you and score. And I was like, I'm really bad at this game. And, and so there was actually a weird moment of clarity of like, you know, that's fair. I, I think they made the right decision. And it's one thing to be left out when you know, you know, it's your fault. You fell short. But it also really stings when you get left out because of factors that are totally outside of your control. So, so for instance, I grew up going to Catholic school, even though my family was not Catholic, because schools in Louisiana are just terrible. So they're like, we need to get them at least a halfway decent education. So they sent me to Catholic school. And, and that meant that I grew up going to mass every Wednesday. And about once a week, we'd go to mass on Wednesday and they would pick a different class to help put on the mass. And they would have altar boys and they'd have people go set up and, and when they asked for volunteers when it was time for my class to go, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to help. I want to help. And there was just really awkward because it's like, oh, you're not Catholic. So you cannot do most of the things that normally the class gets to do. But they finally found something for me. I got to carry the Bible down the altar to start the Mass, which, like, as a third grader, I was like, this is a huge deal. I'm holding the Bible. And it was a big Bible, too. It was, like, about this size. And I remember during the rehearsal for the Mass I was standing with a few other boys and we were, you know, third graders. So we're joking around being stupid. And at one point the teacher turns and yells at us and says, hey, you guys need to be quiet and take this seriously. And then she saw me and she said, and you, you're not even supposed to be here because you're not Catholic. So you better get in order. We're taking this role away from you and finding someone who can do it. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, I don't belong here like that. I'm not, I'm not one of you. There is something separate about me compared to the rest of you. And that did not feel great. And I'll be the first to admit that that small amount of prejudice that I faced was tiny compared to what many people experience almost on a daily basis. Because all around the world, prejudice is essentially a part of our DNA. I think in our minds, it's almost natural. We, we do it without thinking that we divide the world into two categories, us and them. I think it's natural for us to split up everyone into two groups, the people who are like me and those who are not. And everyone does it instinctively. So we create these categories of black and white, men and women, rich and poor, old and young, Republican, Democrat, people in the Adirondacks and people in the city. 
it is human nature for us to divide humanity into insiders and outsiders. And if you think about any two groups, no matter what groups you think about, I would argue that no two groups have ever had a bigger divide than Jews and Gentiles. Why do I say that? Well, just think about the divide between white and black in America. The divide between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. The divide between Russia and Ukraine right now. These divisions all began with man. And these are serious, deep divisions that are not easily resolved. But the divide between Jews and Gentiles did not originate with man, but was ordained by God. God chose the family of Abraham out of all the families of the world. And he said, you're going to worship differently than anyone else. You're going to eat differently. You're going to dress differently. You're going to live differently. And just think about all the laws that we went through when we went through the book of Leviticus and how often God says, you're not going to be like the other nations around you. I'm setting you apart. You're going to be different. The divide between Jew and Gentile was religious because it had to do with their faith. So there's this idea, we worship the true God, which is true. And they worship false gods or no gods. It was cultural. It had to do with what they dressed, what they ate. You couldn't go to a restaurant with a Gentile because you couldn't even eat the same foods. You couldn't practice the same purification rituals. And then racially, there was a divide. You could not be the son of um, anyone who was not a son of Abraham. You had to be descended from the line of Abraham. Not Ishmael, not Esau, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had to be of the people, of, of the family chosen by God. So there's these intense divisions. If you think about the difference between black and, and white, that, that's fabricated in our minds because we know that all of humanity comes from the same. There are no different races. There's really just ethnicities. There's different flavors of the same kind of person. So those differences are shallow when it comes to race or politics or geopolitical standing. But differences that are ordained intentionally by God, how do you overcome those differences? Is it even possible to overcome those differences? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 2 is on page 1160. And as you're turning, let me tell you, this is the part of Ephesians 2 that nobody ever talks about. Everyone loves Ephesians chapter 2. I love Ephesians chapter 2. Though when we say we love Ephesians chapter 2, we mean verses 1 to 10. But let me tell you this morning that we are going to finally get to Paul's real point. The whole reason Paul wrote this letter was because he wanted to unite the Jewish believers in the church of Ephesus and the Gentile believers. And so far, Paul has just been laying the groundwork. He's like, you guys have been chosen by God, both of you. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, both of you. You were both dead in sin, children of wrath, but God made you alive. And by grace, both of you have been saved. That so far, Paul has not talked about ethnicity or race or the differences between Jew and Gentile. He has just been flattening out the differences and saying, look how much you have in common. 
He's been building his case. And finally, in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul gets to the point. And here is Paul's argument. When you were adopted into the family of God, when you were adopted into the family of God, listen to me. You did not just get a new heavenly father. You got heavenly brothers and sisters too. That the reconciliation that you have experienced with God Almighty is, is not, that's not it. The reconciliation that you have experienced in heaven extends to all those who have also been reconciled. And so now, how do we get over these differences? You are a family. What does it look like to live like one? And in this passage, we don't just find a way for Jews and Gentiles to become reconciled with one another, but for any and all believers to be reconciled with one another. Because of all of our differences, as difficult as they are, as insurmountable, as impossible as they seem to overcome, if God could overcome the difference between Jew and Gentile, which he ordained those differences and then overcame them, then we could overcome any difference that we experience within the people of God. And that would be a powerful testimony in this world. Like once again, there's this thought, we've got young people, we've got old people. What if we just split the church? Let's just have a young church and an old church and then nobody has to give up their preferences. The old people can sing the songs they like, the young people can sing the songs they like, right? But what if as a testimony to the world, young and old come together to give up their preferences to worship the same Jesus. And that's Paul's argument. He's not saying, let's, okay, let's have a Gentile church and a Jewish church. He says, no, it's going to be a testimony to the world if you're together worshiping the same God. And as we read Ephesians chapter two, we're going to find three reminders for why we should be unified. Three reminders. In these verses, we'll be reminded of our alienation, our reconciliation, and our identification. First, in verses 11 through 12, we'll see that we were alienated from God and his people. Second, in verses 13 through 18, we'll see that we have been reconciled with God and his people. And third, in verses 19 through 22, we'll see that we have been identified with God and his people. So before we dive into this glorious passage, let's pray. God of all peace, guide our minds this morning as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to know your will, and as we seek to obey your commands. And Lord, as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Look with me to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Stop there. Throughout this whole letter, Paul has been speaking to the entire church, but here he singles out the Gentiles and he singles them out in a very interesting way. He starts off by saying, you guys, we used to call you the uncircumcision. That was your name. Now I'm not gonna go into all the gory details of circumcision, but, uh, but it's just this physical reminder that you have been separated, that you've been cut off from the world, that you've been made holy to God. And it was an important rite of passage for the Hebrews. It was an important ceremony that would mark the Israelites as the people of God. That would make them different from everyone else. 
Because way back when God made a covenant with Abraham, he, he required every man to be circumcised to receive the blessings of the covenant. You read a little later, Moses is not circumcised. God almost kills him. You remember that story? It's weird. But it's this idea that you are my people, so you will be identified with me. And so circumcision became this badge of honor. It was a cultural touchstone for the Israelites. And so even that's why when you read the story of David and Goliath and David hears Goliath mocking the Israelite armies, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He uses it as an insult for the enemies of Israel. But notice that what Paul has to say about circumcision in verse 11, he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. This important ceremony Paul is emphasizing the human nature of it. Paul is essentially saying in verse 11, this is ultimately just an earthly ceremony. Circumcision was always meant to be a symbol of a greater inward reality. Paul is saying that outwardly, circumcision is just a ceremony performed by human hands. What we all really need is what Leviticus 26 calls the circumcision of the heart. We need God to do a work with, within us and to make us clean. We need God to mark us as his people. Because outwardly, it's just a work of human hands. The problem the Gentiles ultimately had was not a minor surgery. Their real problem was in verse 12. Look to verse 12. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul knows how to pack a punch. In verse 10, Paul told the Ephesians, hey, you are God's workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. But just to make sure the Ephesians don't get cocky, Paul's like, don't forget where you came from. And once again, he's specifically calling out the Gentile believers. And it's probably because at the Ephesian church, most of the believers were Gentiles. You see, even though Jesus and all of the apostles and all of the first believers, even though they were all Jewish, and even though every time the gospel would go out, they go to the synagogue first and they're preaching to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, the Jews continued to reject and to reject and to reject the gospel. And the Gentiles just kept coming into the church and it exploded until eventually the church is like 80% Gentiles. And so at first, the problem was is that Jewish believers had this arrogance about them of we're the chosen people. You're the dogs that just got in. And then eventually the Gentiles had this attitude of you guys are rejecting your own Messiah. The Gentiles are now the chosen people. And Paul wants none of that. So Paul's like, remember where you came from, separated from Christ, aliens, strangers, without hope. See, in the Old Testament, the only way you could become a part of the people of God was by physically relocating to Israel and by converting. But outside of that, they had no true prophets, no scripture. They didn't know the promises of God. They had no promise of a Messiah. Totally helpless and hopeless. That's right. Even the, the culmination of the day of atonement ceremony is when you, when you sacrifice these two goats to atone for all of Israel. And one day it was only for the nation of Israel. The atonement was limited to God's covenant people, not to everyone. Is that God had his heart set on 
Israel. You know, most people today, especially in the age that we're living in, are living with this kind of hopelessness attached with them, especially because so many people travel so much and move around. They don't have roots anywhere. As we're moving more and more away from any kind of religious narrative that you're created by God for a purpose for his glory, the the narrative, your life story has just become find whatever makes you happy. Find the job that's most fulfilling. And so when you can't be a breakout superstar or living your dream or following your passion, life crushes you. And we're seeing an epidemic of depression and isolation and loneliness that we have not seen in a long time. Because essentially what most people are told is, hey, nothing is really right or wrong. Life is just meaningless. Just find a way to make yourself happy. And we're terrible at that. That is an unfulfilling life. It's a hopeless life without purpose or reason. But also notice that at the end of verse 12, that Paul tells these Gentiles that they were without God, which is interesting, right? Like these were not atheists before they came to the faith. The mass majority of them were quite religious. They were polytheistic and were incredibly spiritual. But Paul tells them, you were without God in this world. We cannot make the mistake of thinking that being spiritual is somehow any better than being an atheist. As, as church people, we tend to demean the atheist and the agnostic. But if you're kind of just over here doing your own thing, but divorced from the church, divorced from the Bible, divorced from the teachings of Jesus, at least you're spiritually better. No, you are without God, without hope in this world. This is for the religious. This is for the Mormon and the Muslim and for the Jew and for the spiritual but not religious. This is for people in our community who are without hope. We were alienated from both God and man. But these verses also describe our lives before the grace of Jesus came. But the good news is that reconciliation came. Look at me to verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All the way back in, in verse 4, we saw, but God has made you alive. And now we get a but now as though we were alienated and strangers and hopeless. But now, by the blood of Jesus, we have been drawn near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both. Who is the us? Jew and Gentile has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Stop right there. If you were to go to the tabernacle or the the temple, you would actually have these layers of the temple where you would have different temple courts and and you would have uh, the the very holy of holies where only the high priest could go. And then there's the holy place where only the, the priest could go. And then there's the outer court where only men could go. And then there was a court for Jewish women. And then outside, all the way back, the nosebleed section, right? There was a wall separating Gentiles from the rest. That's as close as they could get. It's actually a sign that was uh, posted recently that says, if any Gentile enters and leaves and goes into the temple, then their death be upon their own head. Now, I don't know if that's like a threat or a curse, but it was taken incredibly serious. You are alienated. You are far off. You have no access to God. 
but it's by the power of the blood. Notice that. What draws you to Christ? Where is the power in bringing you from alienation into peace with God? It's in the blood of Jesus. That Jesus did not die as some great example of love, but by his blood, there is power. Now listen to me, listen to me. Jesus did not die to make you savable. He died to save you. That the power and the blood of Jesus is not just there ready for you to accept it, but it actually draws and works on your heart and reaches out to you even when you were alienated and hopeless and strangers. The cross is not just a part of Jesus' story. It is the main point of his story. It is the greatest moment of his glory. Because Jesus did not die as some symbolic act of love, but on the cross, he actually accomplished something. His death actually changed the natural course of human history. This, if you think about John chapter 10, I was, I'm thinking about this a lot. John 10 and Ephesians 2 have so many parallels. Listen to this. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. What's Jesus talking about with the sheep analogy? Saying the Jews are the sheep here, and the Gentiles, most of the people in this room, who far off thousands of years away, you're the other sheep that he has to bring in also. That by the power of Jesus' blood, he is creating a people from both the nation of Israel and the nations of the world, all kinds of people. And he has paid for their sins, and he calls his sheep by name, and when Jesus calls, they will listen. Listen to me, church. Jesus did not die to make you savable. He died to save you. He did not offer up his life on the cross, defeat all of hell, the devil, and death himself, and then cross his fingers and say, boy, I hope somebody comes and accepts this. No, what Jesus says is if a seed dies, you can guarantee that it will bear much fruit. And today, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith alone in Jesus, then you are the fruit of the harvest which Christ died to produce. If you're a follower of Christ, then you're one of Christ's sheep. That Christ has died for you, church, and your salvation has been guaranteed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Look back to verse 15. He's broken down the wall of flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. And, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to, peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see the case that Paul is building. Two peoples, one man. Two peoples far away one near, one far, both drawn together so that both of them have one spirit to the same father. Hostility is dead. And once again, we return to the analogy of the sheep and the goats. 
For the Israelites, once again, the world was divided into two peoples, Jew and Gentile. Gentile is actually, it's the word goy, which, which just means nations. So Gentile is literally the word nations. It just means everybody else. And if you're descended from Abraham, then you are Jewish. And if you're not, you're a Gentile. And I think it's crystal clear, once again, that Jesus was talking about gathering Jewish sheep in and then Gentile sheep to come and be of one fold. You see, God does not have two flocks. God does not have two people. There's, there's many people that would argue vehemently, and I, I don't understand why, that God has two brides. He has Israel and the church, the Jews and the Christian. But that is not the picture that we get in John 10 or Ephesians 2. It is not as if one flock replaces the other flock. That is not the picture there. The church in no way replaces Israel. That is bad theology, period. But all who listen to the voice of Jesus come into the flock of God. Because this is what I say about Christianity. Christianity is not a new religion. Jesus did not start a new movement. Christianity is true Judaism. And it was just at the moment that Jesus died for not just Israel, but for the nations, the floodgates were open. He says, now everyone become a part of Israel. Everyone become a part of this flock. Christianity is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why the wall of hostility has been destroyed. There is no more divider between Jew and Gentile. But we have one flock, one church, one people. Let me borrow an illustration from Pastor Skip Heitzig. He was really helpful for this in his words. So let's just say up in the rocks looking down is a Moabite. And the Moabite sees the children of Israel camp. They built this tabernacle and there's smoke going up and sacrifices going up. And there's a little tent closure in the middle of the courtyard. So the Moabite man comes down. He goes up to the gate and says to the man standing at the gate of the tabernacle, an Israelite, hey, can I go in there? That looks really cool. The man would say, well, sure, any Israelite can go in there. Well, I'm not an Israelite. I'm a, I'm a Moabite. Well, then no, you cannot go in there. Well, what would I have to do to get in there? I guess you have to go and be born an Israelite to go in there. So the man sort of hung his head and said, oh, man, I wish I had been born an Israelite. And then he was watching and he noticed that there was a man who was a priest, a man taking animal sacrifice, and it went up in smoke to heaven. And the man raised his hands and sprinkled blood on the altar and then washed his hands and then walked into the little tent and said, wow, that looks cool. Where did he go? What's in that little room? And the man explained, well, in that little room, it's called the holy place. There's a golden lamp standing there and there's a table with bread on it and there's an altar of incense. And the priest is going to trim the lamps and change the bread and burn incense to God as the prayers of the congregation. So the Moabite says, oh man, I wish I had been born an Israelite because I'd love to go in that room. And the man would say, Israelites can't go in that room. You have to be an Israelite of the tribe of Levi of the family of Aaron to go in that room. Only priests can go in that room. Oh, well, what else is in that room? The Israelite would explain, well, I've been told there's a beautiful veil that separates that room, the holy place, from another room called the Holy of Holies. And in that room is a chest, a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God lives and that's where God dwells. That's the very presence of God in that room. And the Moabite said, oh, I wish I was born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. I'd love to go into that room and hang out with God. And the Israelite would say, you cannot go in. Only the high priests can go in to that room. 
So the man said, oh, I wish I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. I wish I was a high priest. I'd love to go in that room because if I could, I'd go in that room every single day. I'd do it three times a day just to get nearer to God. And the man would say, oh, you couldn't do that. Only the high priest can go into that room once a year for a very short period of time, lest he die. Now, you know, at that point, the guy's just going to hang his head and walk away, having no hope whatsoever of ever being able to get near the presence of God. And so with all of that in your mind, do you understand the significance of the dividing wall being torn down? That on the cross, when Jesus died and the wrath of God was satisfied and the veil split from top to bottom, that we now as believers indwelt with the spirit, able to worship with the saints on Sunday, we have access to the presence of God in a way that Gentiles had no access to for thousands upon thousands of years. And that even most of the Israelites had no way to enter. It was God saying, when that veil ripped from top to bottom, y'all can come in. Y'all come in. Jew, Gentile, you believe in Jesus, you can come in. There is no separation. You who are out are now in. Now there is integration. And you are a family. And you have some understanding of the kind of access we have. Not just as worshipers, but as a family. Separation is gone. And the church needs to always remember that. The church should always have its doors open and its arms open to all who are seeking to come regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of culture, regardless if your hair is long or short or bald, regardless if you got tattoos or wrinkles or if you got rips in your jeans. doesn't matter. Those divisions do not matter. Not only have we experienced alienation and reconciliation through the blood of Christ, But there's one last thing we have experienced, identification. We have been identified both with God and the people of God. Look at me to verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Stop there. Y'all, I'm proud to be an American. I love America. Like, I've never, I don't know why, just in this season, I feel more patriotic than I have been in a long time. Like, I value that whenever I crossed the border into Canada and I got to use my little passport. And, and I remember, like, driving the roads of Montreal and seeing French on the signs, and I was just like, oh, I hate this country. I want to go back. Like, there, there's, there's a pride in the place that I live, and I love being an American, and I love being a citizen. But all of that pales in comparison to the citizenship we have in heaven. That in reality, the the citizenship that I I have here as an American is fading. It is temporary. And now we are strangers in this world and we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. America ends tomorrow. The constitution burns and is never implemented again. I'm happy because my hope is not in America. My hope is in the kingdom to come. And also look at that. Not only citizens, that is a great analogy for what we are now, that that you look around no matter what nation anyone is, we are fellow citizens with the saints. But it's also this imagery of being members of the household of God. That's, That's one of the ways we get the language of church membership. 
It's not something we devise to help grow our church, but that's a biblical terminology is that you are a member in God's household and family. It's the most common analogy used for the church is, is a family. And so what that means is that we fight like a family is that when we step on each other's toes and we sin against each other and we work it out because we know we can't get rid of each other. Am I right? I got friends that I was a lot closer to that I liked a lot better than my biological family, but no matter where I move, no matter where I go, my biological family is always there. And that's the impulse we should have with the church as fellows members in the household of God. Because look what God is doing in the church. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That image of apostles and prophets, apostles being the the scripture writers and the preachers of the New Testament, prophets being those of the Old Testament. This is saying built on the foundation of the word of God. We are being built into God's house with Christ as the cornerstone. The, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Any church that abandons this foundation is no longer a church. There's a myth going on that that, that American Christianity is declining and that the church is going down. And if you look at the statistics, evangelical Christianity is doing great. Mainline denominations where they have abandoned the word of God long ago, they're the ones that they cannot spend. They've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in their bank account and they can't spend their way out of it because nobody wants to go. Because 100 years ago, a lot of them said, hey, the miracles of the Bible, they're too hard for people to understand. The resurrection's kind of crazy. The virgin birth's too weird. Jonah, let's get rid of Jonah. So, so let's just teach the morals of the Bible without the miracles of the Bible. And now that as the culture is changing, they're, they're abandoning the morals of the Bible too. And what are you left with? There's no foundation. And so there's some churches in the Adirondacks that when I see it closed down, I'm Oh, that's, that, that is a shame. Most of them, I'm like, hey, praise the Lord, one less. Because that church had no foundation. And the only way this church is going to last is if we continue to root our foundation on the word of God, on the word of the apostles, the word of the prophets, whether we like it or not, whether it's comfortable or not, the word of God must be at the root of everything we do as a church. Amen? In whom, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together Once again, you see this unity. We're being built together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. To someone who was raised in the commonwealth of Israel, the temple meant everything to them. Like that was the place you experienced the presence of God. But in these verses, it's like, no, you're the temple. Solomon's temple does not compare. And to the Greeks in the city, they're in the city of Ephesus where the great temple of Artemis stood tall and the whole city revolved around this temple. And and then Paul says to them, no, you are the temple. Christ is the cornerstone. You are living stones being built together. For when you are together, the spirit of God dwells. As you look at verse 22, there's this beautiful Trinitarian nature to verse 22 that that in him, in Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God, for the Father, by the Spirit. I don't know if you realize this, but our prayers are Trinitarian in nature. We pray to God the Father by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. That it's by the triune God that we have access to God. And get this, 
Sometimes you go to a church service and, and your kid's pulling on your hair and people are running around and the music's no good and the sermon stinks and you're just like, how is this the temple of God? Like this is, this is, this is kind of pathetic, right? Like sometimes, sometimes you go to church and that's, that's some, I go to church and sometimes I feel that way. But the beauty of the church is when we gather together, it's a foretaste of that heavenly worship service that goes on in heaven night and day and never ends in which every hour is better than the one before. That when you hear the voices of the saints being lifted up and you hear the word of God being read and being preached and when you pray together with the saints, that's a foretaste of the throne room of God and what we will experience in heaven in perfect communion with God. The church is the dwelling place of God, which is a preview of that new Jerusalem. So my prayer this morning was that the peace of God, the peace that we have with God would lead us into peace with one another. Because in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we found three reminders. We were alienated from God and his people. We, were, we have been reconciled with God and his people. And we have been identified with God and his people. That we are one another. We are the temple being built into one another. So let me ask you this. Where is your citizenship? Where is your hope? Have you experienced the peace of God which surpasses all understanding? Because if we take this seriously, that by Christ, he is our peace. Then peace is not a possession. Peace is a person. Has you ever seen a newborn baby crying as it comes out of the womb, screaming its lungs off, and then the first time it just comes in contact with its mother, there is something biological that happens in which it just instantly calms. Because peace is a person for that newborn. And for all those who are in Christ, they get that peace. Do you have that peace? Have you experienced that? And let me ask you, are you walking in light of these realities? Have you embraced your heavenly family? When you were adopted into the family of God, you did not just get a heavenly father, but also heavenly brothers and sisters too. Are you loving them well? Are you pulling your weight around the house? Are you doing your chores? Are you committed to your family? Are you just kind of the uncle that shows up every third Christmas? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you this morning. I have three ways we can apply this text to our lives. First pastoral charge, trust alone in the cross of Christ Trust alone in the cross of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. He didn't die to pay for some sins or most sins, but Jesus paid it all. I've heard well-meaning preachers say, now God has done all he can do and the rest is up to you. And here's the problem with that. If anything is up to you, then Jesus did not pay it all. Salvation isn't something that is accomplished once you're baptized or when you come to the church or when you do enough good things. It has been accomplished on the cross and the only way you can receive it is through the open hands of faith. If you turn from your sin and trust alone in the cross of Christ, you can leave here today with the joy of knowing that he has accomplished it. Second pastoral charge, seek unity at all costs. Seek unity at all costs. Like, once again, there is a difference between recognizing a reality and walking in that reality. Amen? That, that, uh, we, we have this understanding the church should be unified, that Christ died for us to bring us together. And now the goal is to recognize that reality and walk in it. Are you walking in that reality? Reality. 
The question is not, are we unified? Christ has already established our unity as believers. The question is now, will you recognize your unity with other believers and walk in it? Listen, church, there, you have more in common with any believer than any non-believer in this world. You can have an identical twin who's not saved, who has lived the entire life that you have lived, but a, a Christian in a remote village in Africa, you have more in common with that Christian than you have with your identical twin. That's where even, it's, it's so strange. In Ephesians 1, Paul brings up predestination, which is this divisive subject in the church. And I understand why it's divisive, but the point of Paul's argument is not to get us to debate. The point of Paul's argument is that, is that believers, you both have a connection that predates Genesis 1. That you were both chosen before the world began to be adopted into the same family. And so, so if you look around in this room, even if you disagree vehemently with other positions, like if you totally disagree about what predestination is or looks like, can you recognize the unity that you have in Christ before the foundation of the world? If you look around the other Christians in this room, God decided to make us a family before the world began. Can you put aside your partisan blinders and love someone of the opposite political party as long as you have the book of Ephesians in common? Can you love a brother or sister of a different age, of a different race, of a different country, a different language? Can you love someone who sins differently from you? Can you love the recovering heroin addict? Or can you love the gay person or the trans person as long as you have Christ in common? Can you love those who are not from here, those who are not local? Can you love even students from Word of Life? And if you're here at the BI, can you love and be unified with those crazy backwoods Adirondackers if all you have in common with them is Ephesians 2? I, I think if we understand this passage, even if we're all at different stages, even if we all look differently and think differently, if we're all repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus and he is our savior and he is our hope, then the answer must be yes. Third pastoral charge, final pastoral charge. Formally commit to a local church. Formally commit to a local church. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus loved his church. And the expectation of the New Testament is that every believer not only attend a church occasionally, not only attend a church regularly, but be an active member within a local church. And in the New Testament, when believers were baptized, they were immediately added to the number of the church because there was no understanding that someone would be baptized and not a member of that church. A baptism is actually what creates church membership in a local church. You know, the Bible in Hebrews 13 says to submit to your pastors. If you are not a member of a church, which pastor do you submit to? Joel Osteen or the ones at Westboro Baptist? I'm just saying... You need a pastor to submit to. You got to pick a church and you got to choose to love that church and to commit to that church and to be with that church. It, it's not just this ethereal thing of like, yes, the church is out there and I love the church. I'm going to go to Christian conferences. But here's the idea is that you get involved with real people in real life and you commit yourself locally to that body of Christ. I'll admit it's easier said than done. I'll admit that we are even not the healthiest of church. We have some work to do but it'd be better for you to go and commit yourself to another local church than to stay here and never commit. Because when believers commit to love and serve and forgive one another, God gets glory. And on that note, let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for all the ways that you have brought us together by your grace. May we forever stay in awe of you. May our cry always be Christ alone, Christ alone, and not of ourselves. For by your grace, we have been saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.